In our jelly bean experiment earlier, we saw how working together, a diverse crowd can solve problems that we simply couldn't answer on our own, and how it's the sum of our unique experiences. It's that very diversity of our individual answers which gives us this powerful advantage. And that works only if we enjoy the freedom and the confidence to express our opinions honestly and share a willingness to take everyone else's ideas into account. And that's not just true for trivial abstract tasks like estimating how many beans there are in a jar. Crowds can even answer difficult, complex questions, questions that have a real right and a wrong answer. If you remember the TV show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, each question has four possible answers. So a monkey, or a total guess, would get the answer right 25% of the time. But as the questions get more difficult, players have three lifelines they can use to help them out. 50-50, which removes two wrong answers, so now even a guess would be right 50% of the time. Or the contestant can phone a friend. Now, phone a friend is usually the smartest person they know who's standing by to help them. And working together with their smart friend, contestants get the answer right 65% of the time. But there's also one other lifeline where contestants can opt to ask the audience. Now, the audience for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, just like all TV shows, is just a bunch of random people dragged in off the street who are available cheaply during the daytime. But that audience of non-genius, non-experts gets asked some of the hardest questions on the show. And altogether, their answers are right, not 25%, not 50%, not 65%, but a staggering 92% of the time. Confirming that under the right conditions, a diverse crowd of random people is significantly smarter than the smartest person you know, and often smartest, smarter than the smartest person in the crowd itself, which is peculiar. But how come we see examples then of really bad crowd behavior and really terrible group decisions all around us every single day, online, in the media, in politics and sport, and yes, even in our churches. And no one could possibly accuse the crowd in our reading this morning of displaying wisdom or sound judgment. It turns out crowds are only wise under the right conditions. And in other circumstances, far from displaying wisdom, crowds can be not just a bit daft, but downright dangerous. The opposite of a wise crowd is academically rather wonderfully described in the Wisdom of Crowds book as a senseless mob. And there are certain recognized circumstances and characteristics that can trigger a crowd into forming a senseless mob. But this isn't just academic, because our reading today provides us with a textbook example of precisely this in action. In verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Jesus is speaking to his hometown, and so far it couldn't have been going any better. He was well received by this seemingly wise crowd, and yet... Just five verses later, that crowd were all 
sorry, that crowd that were all so amazed in just verse 22, have all turned against Jesus. And the ugly face of a mob is revealed. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. When Adrian read the passage just now, it just didn't seem like Jesus said anything particularly radical or controversial, certainly nothing to enrage those previously so delighted by Jesus' gracious preaching. So what was it that incited a mob to drive him out of his own hometown and to try to kill him in just five verses? It turns out that there are two specific triggers which are guaranteed to inflame the passions of a crowd, enough to generate a senseless mob. And we see them both in our reading this morning. In the wisdom of crowds, we read that the coordinated mass behavior of a mob is down to two key factors. A mob is self-centered, believing that their wants and needs come first and are all that matters. And mobs are self-righteous, the mob certain that its members are better or morally superior to outsiders. Mobs, then, are an extreme manifestation of groupthink, echo chambers where our own preferences and prejudices and intolerances become tribalized and amplified. Rather than adding to our wisdom, any voice that differs from the mob's predefined narrative must be silenced. The mob is a horde that becomes so self-righteously convinced that they know best that anyone who thinks differently is not just ignorant or wrong, but bad, and such a danger to the purity of the group that the mob is justified in taking almost any action to purge itself of them. And it is precisely this sense of self-centeredness and self-righteous superiority that Jesus encounters in Nazareth and challenges in those five verses that we read together. You see, the mob in Nazareth is angry because their self-centered definition of their faith was based not on who God is, but on what they expected their God should do for them. And by their sense of superiority over all those who they excluded from their community. The crowd listening to Jesus in Nazareth saw their identity as a holy huddle where the self-righteous would gather together so that God could easily identify those that he should bless. And those outside were at best to be pitied and at worst to be persecuted. And so they had come expecting a double portion of blessings, and yet here was Jesus serving a double helping of humble pie. By talking about a God who's working with the unclean, serving the undeserving, reaching out to the outcasts and the foreigner, and the mob's very identity was put at stake. Instead of listening to Jesus, he had to be stopped. He had to be run out of his own hometown. Verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of town. That doesn't mean they drove him out of town by giving him a lift. They drove him and dragged him out of his own hometown and brought him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That's a coded way of saying they were starting to stone him to death. Fortunately for Jesus, there's one last characteristic of a senseless mob. For all their sound and fury, they're almost always chaotic and ineffective. Yes, Jesus is under God's protection, and because it's not yet time for him to be killed, 
he makes his escape. But his escape on this occasion is as much to do with the frenzied ineptitude of the mob as God's divine sovereignty. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. Often this reading is perhaps personalized to Jesus or localized specifically to something about his hometown of Nazareth. But this is very much a lesson for all God's people, and particularly for our present time, because we're bombarded by this kind of angry identity politics. We hear every day about cancel culture, Brexit versus Remain, left versus right, and we're assaulted by social media and echo chambers filled with self-righteous anger almost everywhere we turn. We're living in the golden age of the mob. Scott Sauls wrote in his book, A Gentle Answer, in our current cultural moment, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, more rewarded than rejected. Outrage is used to stimulate us, and outrage is used to sell to us. And if we're honest, far from being a refuge and a respite from these culture wars, we still see self-centered expectations and self-righteous behavior too often in our churches. God's people are as often as they were in Nazareth, at best isolated from and at worst irrelevant to the very communities we're called to seek, to serve, and to save. I mean, maybe it's natural to want to disengage, to shield ourselves from an angry broken world, but we can end up excluding and alienating the world around us from Christ rather than attracting it to him. Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. They're so unlike your Christ. Now Gandhi was a Hindu and not a Christian, but he had a remarkable affection and respect for Jesus' ministry so much so that Martin Luther King, speaking in Montgomery, Alabama, at the height of the U.S. civil rights movement, referred to Gandhi as one of Jesus's other sheep and suggested that Gandhi, more than anybody else in the modern world, had caught the spirit of Jesus Christ and lived it more completely in his life. Yet, Martin Luther King observed, it is one of the strangest ironies of the modern world that the greatest Christian of the 20th century was not a member of the Christian church. But as we saw in our passage this morning, this is not so much a strange irony of the modern world as a direct parallel to the story of the prophets that Jesus quoted in our reading this morning. The prophets, to reach the world with God's message, had to reach and operate outside God's home team when God's chosen people were unwilling or unable to hear God's voice or heed God's calling. And this is not a punishment from a vengeful God, but the fulfillment of the promises of a God so faithful that he will continue his merciful work to save the whole world with us if he can or without us if he must. To quote Archbishop William Temple, the church exists primarily for the sake of those who are still outside it. Scott Sauls, again writing this time in the brilliant book Irresistible Faith, asks us all a question. What would it look like for the local church to become the most diverse and welcoming rather than the most homogenous and inhospitable community on earth? 
instead of the insular defensive representation of faith that Luke records in Nazareth, what if we, his church, modeled ourselves on the diverse and welcoming church we see depicted by Luke in Acts, where the Christian community enjoys a quality of life so rich, a worship so genuine, a fellowship together so deep, and a love so palpable that they were having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. The novelist and poet Madeleine Engel wrote, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. We draw people to Christ by showing them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Instead of keeping people out of our churches, our churches will draw people to Christ by showing them then a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. And the challenge this morning is to realize that together, we, the church, form just that light. When I talk individually to members of this church, I see each of our wonderful sparkling lights, and I know that this is exactly the kind of community and church each one of us longs to be a part of. We each yearn for change, but I often hear fear and frustration expressed about whether, when, and how our church will ever change. Because somehow, when we are together, too often our differences distract us and divide us, diffusing and scattering our individual points of light rather than focusing, enriching and empowering them such that we shine together brilliantly outward into a world with a light that cannot be extinguished or ignored. The church needs to change and it's a change we all want, a change God longs to facilitate and a change that the world needs. And the good news is that the most profound changes that we can and must make require no additional finance, effort, or resources of any kind. But they are changes that we can only make together. Together we can change our language. Together we can change our culture. Together we can change our priorities. Together we can change, heal, and restore our relationships. Gandhi said, we must become the change we want to see. That's our sermon in a sentence this morning. We must become the change we want to see. Not I alone, or you alone, not even Keith alone, but together we must become the body of Christ that the world needs to see which is not the same as working harder or behaving better or becoming more like one another. Because while unity in Christ is our strength, our efforts at uniformity are in fact our greatest weakness. All believing in one God is not the same as all thinking, saying, and doing the same thing. God is longing to do something genuinely new and distinctively different, and it involves you. It involves all of us working together as the body of Christ. It is as that body 
with Christ as our head and each of us contributing our unique brilliance and radiance, that the light and love of God will shine authentically out from his church and into a world seeking community and identity and love and unity more desperately than ever before. This week, we're free again to take off our masks. And that's a physical change that makes church feel a little different today. I mean, it's great to be able to see one another's faces properly, but I'm not talking about taking off paper and fabric masks, those masks that have inhibited our fellowship and slightly muffled our worship for these last two years. But this morning, God is inviting us to take off masks that we have perhaps been wearing for decades. The masks we wear not because we fear COVID, but because we fear we're not good enough on our own. The masks we wear not to protect others from a virus, but to please others or to protect ourselves from their judgment or criticism. Masks are effective at slowing down the spread of a pandemic, but when we mask our true beauty, character and identity in church, those masks block our ability to spread the gospel. The face the world needs to see, the answer the world needs to hear, and the change the church needs is a wise, authentic, diverse, gentle, kind, welcoming, unmasked, and wise church. A church known for our passion, not our pettiness, our hope, not our hypocrisy, our love, not our legalism, our celebration, not our criticism, our diversity, not our divisions, a wise crowd that will stand out and speak out for Christ in stark contrast to a divided, self-centered, self-righteous world. God is doing a new thing, and it involves each of us. Every one of us here is wonderfully different, but we are each uniquely made in the image of God. This is why God gathers the faithful in churches, not so he can easily recognize a huddle of holy individuals, but so the world might recognize him. As together we manifest his love, bring his healing, and share his hope with a divided world. Amen.